Hi, my name is Paul and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe that the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to, so we'd love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, restoredtemecula.church, and click on Contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. Okay, good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, Tom and Ebony send their love. They're away this weekend. Uh, Tom just celebrated his birthday during the week. So they're away celebrating that. Happy birthday, Tom. So this morning, I have the opportunity to continue the series that we've been in for, I think, a few years now. I forget exactly when we started, but that tends to happen here with our church community. Uh, We went through John, it seems like, for years, I think several years. We've been now in the Gospel of Matthew for several years, and we've taken breaks here and there to break it up a little bit, but we're diving back in here to the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, we're going to continue that uh, story, that progression. We've actually been in the Sermon on the Mount, which is arguably the most famous teaching, depending on on who you are. I've heard kind of two answers to the question, like, what's the greatest kind of teaching of all time? And it's the Sermon on the Mount. And then a lot of people, a lot of people's other favorite, I guess, teaching or scripture is Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17. I'm not here to pick between the two. I'll take them both. But today, we're just going to focus in on the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're going to be doing this morning. And I want to start with a question. It's a very important question that I think everybody needs to grapple with. The question is, what is the greatest movie trilogy of all time? (laughs) I think Indiana Jones has at least five. The Little Mermaid, Guardians of the Galaxy. Kylo got it. The correct answer is Back to the Future. I would have accepted Lord of the Rings as 1A and Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy as 1B. That's acceptable too, but the correct answer is Back to the Future. So thank you for playing that game. There were some answers there. That... So here's, uh, here's why it's so great. It's a time travel adventure. It's got elements of sci-fi, elements of romance. It's got elements of friendship, deep friendship. Uh, it's funny. It's a comedy. It, there's so much to love about these movies. And so one of the things I've noticed over the years is that As I've gotten older, if you were to ask me, what's your favorite of the trilogy, it's almost always going to be number one. That's kind of widely regarded as a perfect screenplay, actually. They teach it at film school. But recently, I've actually shifted over to number three. The train. The Old West. The Old West. Yep. Bold. Some say bold. You may say obvious, and here's why. I'm going to tell you. So the, uh, the Back to the Future, the third, the third story, if you don't know the story, it, it tra- kind of follows, if you're not a movie guy, Paul, um, the, the story actually is, is a, it's a wonderfully complex and gets a little convoluted in part two, but it's, it's ultimately simple. You have a guy, a young, a 17-year-old kid who's friends with a scientist, and the scientist invents this time machine, and as things work out, it actually works, 
And so they travel through time. And they have all these adventures in different places. 1955, the movie was set in 85. And during the whole story, which I can't get into right now, through like kind of a cosmic accident, they wind up in, 19, or in 1885. So they wind up in the Old West. And so it's a Western, which there's fans of Westerns most likely in this room. Back to the Future 3 is like a sci-fi Western. It doesn't get much better than that, if you ask me. But here's what ends up happening. The, uh, the directors of the movie actually said, hey, this is the big payoff for the whole trilogy is here because we slowed everything down. If you watch the movie, you'll notice it's got a Western kind of feel to it. It's slow. The pace is, I, don't think, I don't mean slow and interesting. It's just they, they left time for character development, which they didn't actually have a ton of time for in the earlier movies. So all like their character development gets tied up and wrapped up in this movie. So I'm just going to focus in on one of the characters today. You might know him as Marty McFly. Uh, it was Michael J. Fox who did this character, and it kind of took Michael J. Fox and made him famous. I guess he was famous before. Doesn't matter. It made him extremely famous. And in that movie, in the third movie, something critical happens to his character. He figures out that there's something seriously wrong with him. He figures out there's something seriously wrong with him. And what is that? Does anybody remember what it is? He has a tendency of flying off the handle whenever, when somebody calls him chicken. 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 Thanks, B. Gotcha. So when people call him chicken, he loses it, which sounds dumb. It can sound dumb. Let's just be real. It's like, who what are we, seven? Like, who calls somebody else a chicken outside of seventh grade? But apparently it was a real thing. Back in the, the 80s, people called each other chicken. And, it's, and it rattled, it stirred th some things up. But here's the, here's the main idea. I think Marty, he has a father who's a, kind of a pushover, George McFly. And so I think what ends up happening is he develops this way of protecting himself from becoming his dad. And that is, if you mess with me, I'm going to sock you and run. <laughs> and he was quick. And he was short. And he could punch up and run. So that's what he would do. And here's the, the thing, though. In the third movie in the Western, the Wild West is a place where there's like saloons and guns and tempers and duels, which if you've never been a part of one before, I haven't either. But apparently, it was a thing where people actually like shot each other, like across the, not like a drive-by, it's like draw, and then you pull out your pistol and see who's quickest, stuff like that. So it's a dangerous place for someone who has a temper, right? And so in the, in the third movie, kind of at the, the climax of the movie, Marty has information about his character flaw that people don't normally have. If you could throw up uh, picture number one, I want to show you this. This is a screenshot. I took it from my phone of my iPad, so the quality's not great. But apparently you can't screenshot movies on Apple. Who knew that? You know now. The clock is still ticking. So what this is, is it's a picture from the future. So again, this is a time travel epic. So what happened there is that Marty, again, he's, he's not from 1885, he's from 1985. This is where it could get a little convoluted, so stick with me. He discovers that his friend, Doc Brown, who gets sent back into the future on accident, dies in 1885, and he can't abide that. He's like, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to save you, because he loves his friend. And so that tombstone actually used to say, here lies basically Doc Brown. But Marty went and saved him. However, 
on the tombstone, instead of saying Doc Brown, it now says Clint Eastwood. Why? Well, Clint Eastwood was like his Western name, which he thought was really cool, and everybody was like, that's the stupidest name I've ever heard. It's a great movie. So what Marty has in his hand is a picture that says, who's going to die? Him. If the events that are taking place today continue to go down the track that they're on, he's, that tombstone will actually be his. And he's, he got called chicken, essentially, and he's being pressured into a, a duel that he can't win. Marty has a character issue, and if he doesn't deal with it, it's going to destroy him. It's going to destroy him. And as I was chewing on this this week, thinking about the message, thinking about the verses that we're going to talk about, this, kind of, this idea struck me that conflict has a way of bringing out character issues to the surface like nothing hardly else can. Can we agree on that? If you want to see your real ugly get into a fight with someone, it, that's, it, it just happens. It comes out. All the character issues come out on the surface. And here's what's interesting. Conflict itself is absolutely inevitable. It's coming for you. It's coming for me. It happens to everybody. Life is full of it. In fact, you could say life is like going from one conflict to another, learning along the way, hopefully learning along the way, and growing. Uh, but conflict is inevitable. Character issues surfacing is actually something that's totally inevitable in your life and mine. What isn't inevitable, though, is the destruction part. Marty was about to be destroyed if he didn't deal with his pride, essentially. There's all these people at this one scene that's amazing. We'll talk about it later. All these people looking at him, pressuring him, saying, if you don't go out there, you're the biggest yellow belly in the West. Translation, you're a coward. And everyone's going to remember you that way. So there's all this pressure on him. And it brought all this out to the surface, right? But he didn't have to be destroyed by that. That was a choice that he was going to have to make. And in our text today, I think that Jesus, the, the words that he's going to say might be very familiar to you if you've been in the church for a while. They're, they're famous words of Jesus, and there's a reason why, because they're incredible. Jesus' words tend to be so. But the, the context of what he's saying is actually conflict that reveals character flaws. And he's showing us a way through that conflict that leads to life and not destruction. In a room this size, I am confident that there's people going through conflict. You're either in conflict right now, or you just came out of one, or you're heading into one. So what I'm saying today, I just want to invite you to take seriously. I know I start with goofy movie stories or whatever, but like what I'm talking about is really serious. It's important. Jesus taught on it for a reason. So if you have a Bible, go over to Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12 with me. If you, weren't, if you haven't been here with us, uh, a couple weeks ago, Mark taught on the first several verses of Matthew 7, so I want to encourage you to go back and check those out. But ultimately, the reason I mention that is because context matters deeply. Whenever we're reading the Bible, whenever you're reading an email or a book or an article, context matters tremendously. You can't really understand what someone's saying unless you know the context in which they're saying it. And so what Jesus is talking about here, the broader passage that these words that he's going to say are addressing, has to do with something that Mark talked about, which I'll just quickly remind you guys of. This passage is actually concerned with fault-finding, condemning attitudes. 
combined with a blindness to our own failings in the context of conflict. Now, hey, that's a mouthful. I know I just said that. But that's what it is. That's what he's talking about. He's addressing this fault-finding spirit, this critical spirit that often emerges during conflict. Again, conflict brings stuff out to the surface. Jesus' solution, you can go back and listen to Mark, he, he unpacked it really well, is that we have to humbly deal with our stuff first. Okay? Give that one away. If you still go check it out. The way he did it, he unpacked it. It's wonderful. But Jesus says, deal with... He says, I need to deal with my stuff first, is what he's telling me, what he's telling you, what he's telling us. And then there's a reality that that sounds great, kind of. If you start thinking about it, it kind of is really hard. It's not impossible to actually do that. Uh, there's a reason for that, why this is so hard. If you stop and think about human conflict, there's two things that I started thinking about that make this so hard. I'm going to go through these quickly, but the first thing is that we have this inherent bent to be masters of misdirection when it comes to conflict. So what I mean by that is if you read the biblical story, what's the first thing that you see after the fall? What's that? We hide, yep. We blame shift. Rather than deal with what's going on, we point the finger to the people. That's our inheritance in Adam and Eve. Started blaming each other right away after the fall. The reason why, I think, is because we don't want exposure. We just don't want to be exposed as anything other than what we think we want to project to other people or what we might think we are and maybe the situation is telling us we're not. That's the first reason why this is super hard to deal humbly with our stuff. The second thing, and you guys all know this, we live in a culture of outrage, right? We live in a culture where anger and outrage have become a way of life. You're wrong, I'm right, I get to reject you or ridicule you publicly. All that stuff, or through the comment section, or whatever, through a text message, doesn't matter. There's a reality that we are being discipled into harsh judgment and a critical fault-finding spirit by being alive and living in our culture. We don't, if we don't appreciate that, we're going to be totally unaware of what we're really like. I remember once going to uh, Spain, this is a little bit of a tangent, but this was fun, I thought. I went to Spain, I studied abroad there for a semester when I was in college. I don't know who invented this, who decided to give 21-year-olds the freedom to go six months overseas with mom and dad's money. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, and I loved it. Best time of my life. I saw so I thought. It got better. But here's the thing. Here's the thing with Spain. If you're in another culture for six months, guess what? You're not in your culture for six months. Do you know what happened to me when I got home to my little bubble of USD, which is a little school in San Diego? I was like, this place is weird. Girls go out in their, in their uh, PJs. That's when juicy clothes were popular. I was like, nobody does that anywhere else in the world but here. And now everybody goes out in their PJs. But you know what I mean. This was 2006. This is a different world. So my point is, we often just don't even know what we don't know because we live here. The culture around us does not cultivate what Jesus is going to teach about here. It cultivates the opposite. It's so hard to practice this. Our flesh doesn't want to deal humbly with, with stuff because the flesh isn't humble, it's proud. And our culture cultivates pride. So the odds are stacked against us, yet we're going to see in this text here in a second, 
the longest introduction to an introduction of a text I've ever given in my life. You're welcome. You're going to see that Jesus sees things differently. When we face situations that tempt us and threaten to bring out the worst in us, Jesus says, here's what you should do. Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12. After he tells us to deal with ourselves humbly, check this out. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Kind of confusing when I read this the first, second, third, 40th time. It's like, what is this? How does this little love addendum here at the end make sense? Oh, it makes way more sense looking at it in context. And we'll talk about that. These are Jesus' words to people that he's just told to humbly deal with themselves first. What is he saying? What's Jesus saying? Before I get into it, I just have to throw it on the side because I know there's a lot of parents in the room, of which I am one. Did you notice what he said about parents, human parents? We are, that was a little, we are, you can say it a little louder. This is Jesus we're talking about. This isn't my opinion. We are, thank you. We should proceed accordingly. Not to be evil, but to walk with humility. Yes, there's certain things about us as parents that are good, but there's a whole lot that's wrong. Proceed accordingly. This is just as much for me as it is for you. Jesus doesn't tell us this to condemn us, but he does. He's sober. And kids, your parents are? Yes. Okay? It's true. I'm evil as a parent too. Have some compassion for them. Because the second you turn it, you become a parent, you are going to be? You're all welcome. That wasn't even, that's even my message. That's just an aside. That one's just for free. Okay, my first point, if you're taking notes, here's what, I've, here's what I learned from this passage. You ready? Number one, God knows everything I've talked about is hard. God knows this is hard. Uh, setting off on fault-finding expeditions that end in harsh judgment and condemnation of others, easy, very easy, natural. Delaying judgment, working through my stuff first and de- gently, dealing and wisely, gently dealing with and wisely with others, that takes divine intervention. That's what Jesus is saying. It takes love. There's a story that happens later in Matthew that has haunted me this week. I went ahead and read through most of Matthew just as I was prepping for this message And there's a story that, I didn't give this to you guys, so don't worry about throwing these verses up there, but I'm just going to quickly kind of summarize it for you. In Matthew 9, so we're in Matthew 7 right now, so we're talking two chapters later, when Jesus, after he's done, you know, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he goes out and he starts doing stuff. And people start coming up to him. And you get to see how kingdom life works in light of his kingdom teaching. And so he was reclining at one point at the table in Matthew's house. Matthew was a tax collector, which means that he was a traitor, a betrayer of his own people, and he was a part of 
terrible injustices that were being committed on his own people. This is like someone who, I used to use the ISIS analogy. I'm not sure how that's going to connect or land today. But imagine if, imagine if, uh, if the U.S. Was under, the, was under occupation from some other country or some other power, and there were Americans who went to work for that other power that was then essentially enacting their will and robbing you, fleecing you at the same time. So you can imagine the kind of feeling that people had towards tax collectors. This is pure hatred. Matthew was a tax collector, and Jesus said, you follow me. So already, we see that this, whatever Jesus is doing, it's not logical. It's not for the good. It's not for those who deserve it. It's, this is, he's doing something different, something radically different here. He's going after the worst of the worst, if you will, which isn't really the best way to look at it because we all share the same broken humanity. But I think you guys know what I mean. He's, he's turning things upside down. He's flipping tables, not literally at this point, but he will later for other reasons. He's flipping the script, what I'm trying to say. And so Jesus is sitting with, these tax, with the tax collector and with all his friends, so all the outcasts of society, all the people that are most hated by kind of like rights, the right... Uh, the right people, the religious people, the, the good people. So that's who Jesus is hanging with. Pretty weird. If we understand what this is saying, that's weird, right? It's not weird to Jesus. And so the Pharisees were these religious leaders, and they saw this happening. And they asked Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Naturally, this isn't like, tell us, we're curious. It's, a, it's an accusation against Jesus, They're accusing him of wrong. And Jesus responds to them and he says, hey, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, those who are sick who need a doctor. Makes sense? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. That verse right there, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, it's out of the Old Testament. It's haunted me this week. The reason it's haunted me this week is because in Matthew 12, so we're talking just three chapters later, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they did what was not supposed to be done. They picked and ate some of the heads of grain. And then when the Pharisees saw this, the people that Jesus told, go and learn this. Go and learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. When when they saw this, they said, your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. In other words, they didn't learn they didn't learn. And Jesus has to tell them, hey, here's the, here's the biblical backing for what we're doing. It's not, only, it's not only okay, it's the right thing to do. And he said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus, he knows this is hard and he's teaching on it so that this won't happen so that we won't condemn the innocent, so that we won't be judgmental, so that we won't destroy the unity that he came to establish by thinking, I know better. And I'm standing over you as a judge. God knows this is hard. That's my f- first point. And it got, the reason it haunted me is because I can, to- I, I, for the first time, and I don't know how long, and this is not a good sign, so I'm just being, being real with you guys. For the first time in a long time, I identified with a Pharisee. This should happen more. 
I identified with this Pharisee. I started thinking about a situation uh, in my past when I was working. I was already a Christian. I was following Jesus, and I was working at this law firm in San Diego doing research for them. And there was a, a guy who was visiting from another country, and uh, I had heard about him because he, he, I had heard about him before. He was known by people in the law firm, and I knew that he was a Christian. And so I was like, oh, a Christian, this will be fun. There weren't a lot of those at the law firm that I worked at. And so I was excited to, to kind of see him and get to know him, and he came and visited once. He ended up working with us for a long time. But in that first visit, uh, he, he talked about wanting to go and like hang out with some of the people because he knew them, to, like to go to happy hour and then hang. And at that point in my life and discipleship to Jesus, I, I, I didn't drink any alcohol. It was, it was dry. That was kind of my conviction at that point. Um, but I didn't hold it charitably. As soon as he said happy hour, I was like, who is this guy? What's he doing? Going to happy hour? I, of course, assumed that that meant getting blasted <laughs> with coworkers and all this stuff. Either way, even if that's what he meant, I stood over him as a judge immediately. Who does he think he is? As I've reflected on that time, it was a season in hindsight where I was racked with a lot of guilt over my own flaws, and my own failures as a disciple. And I had the lowest understanding of grace I could, you could possibly have. I think just barely enough to be a Christian. It was like, well, he died for my sins. That was it. There was nothing more than that. I didn't know how it applied to relationships. I didn't know how it applied to how I treated other people. I was in a bad place. I condemned the innocent without recognizing the mercy Jesus had shown me. I'd forgotten about it. I didn't understand him. And it, it, that to you might sound like a silly situation. Who cares, bro? People drink or don't drink. What does it matter? I agree. It's, it's, it's the, low, the stakes were low as far as situationally. It's not like he was going to do anything crazy where he's going to really hurt himself or other people. But here's the deal. It revealed a serious heart problem in me. Sometimes people go jogging and have a heart attack. Everyday situations can reveal serious problems. I, like the Pharisees, condemn the innocent. I miss the opportunity to learn mercy from Jesus. And it wasn't just a missed opportunity for me, but it also, that kind of thing can introduce pain into relationships, right? To be on the other end of that hurts. To the people who are in the crosshairs of my lack of mercy, it hurts them. But again, God knows this is hard. And that's why I'm haunted by his words to the Pharisees. He cared enough about them to teach them. They just didn't care enough about him to listen. But this is why the Sermon on the Mount exists. It gives us an opportunity to not repeat the same broken patterns, but to actually believe Jesus and learn to love each other. Yeah, whatever conflict you're facing today, it's hard. I think God knows that. Whether you're in the crosshairs of someone's lack of mercy towards you, or if someone is in the crosshairs of your lack of mercy towards them, getting out of this is not going to be easy. But there is good news for you. I think it starts with just knowing God knows it's hard. That's why this is here. That's why this exists. So take courage. Number two, if you're taking notes, and here's where it starts to get good. God knows how to help. God knows how to help. 
If we can throw up Matthew 7, verses 9 to 11, it says, Who among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? So apparently a stone could look like bread. And then there's, there's certain, there's like an eel-like fish in that region that could look like a snake. Or a, yes, that's right. So essentially he's saying like, is God tricky? Is he deceptive? Does he trick you to hurt you? Is he cruel? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You guys could throw up quote number two that talks a little bit more about this. Jesus' disciples may find it difficult, and again, this is going to reiterate my first point. You might find it difficult to at the same time be both merciful and forgiving and wisely discerning. It's hard to be all of that, isn't it? Some of us are highly discerning, but man, we can be critical. Some of us are really merciful, but we can lack discernment. It's hard to be both. To give other disciples the benefit of the doubt, yet to be on guard for those who would harm the community. To judge no one, yet to be wisely observant to see the true character of people and deal with them accordingly. This is hard stuff, correct? Can we all agree on that? Yeah, really hard stuff. But through the divine enablement that is supplied by God as Jesus' disciples pray, they can avoid the extremes of seven, one, so harsh judgment, condemnation, fault finding. God knows how to help. And this is especially important if we could throw up quote number three. Jesus wants us to apply this prayer, especially in times of helping a fellow Christian deal with his or her own sin, which is what Mark talked about. And when deciding to break off contact with an unbeliever who may no longer be open to the gospel. Mark talked about a lot of that stuff. Check out his message and to get more information. But here's the point for this message. Such decisions cannot be made by mere human reasoning. They must be made from our knees. We need God's wisdom in making such choices. God knows exactly what we need. I remember once, years ago, I was in a, an interesting spot. I was kind of, uh, I'm always learning how to preach, how to do this. And this was years ago, so I was even earlier on in the journey. And I just had one of those Sundays that was just bad. There's just no way around it. That was a dud. If you've ever preached, uh, you, you kind of know what I'm talking about. It was just one of those where everything just kind of fell to the floor. No power. It was just, uh, I felt kind of weird that Sunday. I was like, ugh. This is a, it's a very strange feeling, but sometimes it's kind of like, oh, I would love to hide. You know that Homer Simpson meme where he kind of like put, goes into a bush and disappears? <laughs> Preachers want that after rough Sundays. And that was one of those for me. But there was nowhere to go. And I remember having just the, the roughest kind of 24 hours. The Monday morning quarterbacking was awful. Uh, I think, is that, is that the right term? You kind of like rethink everything and everything looks clear the next day when in reality it wasn't clear in the moment. I'm not a football guy, so I really shouldn't use football analogies. Whatever. I think you guys know what I'm saying. It was just a hard Sunday. And then there's a reason why I'm telling you this. The next day, the next day I get a message from Tom, and we're going to go to South Africa, and he's like, do you want to preach in South Africa? The last thing I want is a mic in my hand. He's like, no. No, I don't want to preach in South Africa. Never been there before. I don't, they speak English. 
But that's about all that we have in common? No, I don't want to go there and do that. I just want to go and I want to hide and observe and watch and learn and do all that stuff. Tell stories of what you did, what somebody else did during this trip when I get back. But that was what I was thinking. I didn't say any of that. I paused, I prayed, and I asked God, like, what to do. And I felt very strongly like, dude, I'm still with you. Go. Go do this. And so I did. And I remember, uh, some of you guys were in my gospel community at that point. You might remember this. You might not. But I remember the day before, I tried to avoid thinking about it. I didn't, I didn't prep on the plane. I got there. I wasn't, it was just like a 10-minute slot, very short, very kind of basic. Just tell your story to some, to some young girls. It's an all-girls school. Tell your story to them. So the night before, I start prepping, I start praying, like, all right, God, you're going to have to do something different because right now this is the last thing I want to do and all that stuff. The next morning, I, 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 we make our way down to the all-girls school. This is in South Africa. And I'm thinking that we're gonna, I'm going to preach to 30, like a classroom. When I get there, I find out it's 500 people. So take whatever we have in the room here and then triple it. Except it's all 13-year-old girls. And me. Again, what's natural about this? Nothing. This is not the situation I would, I would sign myself up for. Here's the thing, though, I did. Because I said yes. So then I start messaging my GC, like, guys, you got to pray. I think at that point, it was probably like the night before with the time change, and they're, they might have been meeting or whatever, or maybe they were just done with their Lord's Supper. This is not what I thought. It's not 30, it's 500. It's girl, it's all, you know, it's a bunch of high school girls at seven o'clock in the morning. None of them want to be here. Help. And so I get up there and I do my usual shtick. Just tell my story and stuff. That's real. I'm not making stuff like this is, you know, I tell my story. Like this is how I've met God, which that in of itself should be like a, whatever. It was like I get to tell them about God, which is actually a pretty cool opportunity in hindsight. But I, I, I do my thing, they're totally engaged, and by the end, they're like clapping and cheering. And I was like, man, that was easy. And all of them who are South Africans were like, no, it is not. This is the worst, you know, preaching slot in South Africa, basically. And I, it, it was one of those moments, they don't happen all the time, but it was one of those moments where I could say like, you know exactly what I need. You know exactly what I need. The last thing I wanted in my hand was a microphone, talking to anybody. I wanted to hide in the bush. And South Africa has a bush. I could have just hidden in the bush <laughs> with a gazelle, whatever. But God was like, it's time. It's time, son. My point in saying this, when we've been talking about relational stuff, so even though this wasn't like a, a conflict, this was like an internal conflict that I was having, my, my point in saying this is God knows exactly what we need next for our development. And when it comes to relationships, the situations that you might have in front of you might be exactly what you need to develop and to grow and for him to come through for you. There could be situations that you're facing that feel humanly impossible to get out of. Conflicts that are just old or whatever, or, or they may be new, but they're big, and they feel beyond you to actually deal with in a 
in a way that's going to lead to any sort of unity, that might be exactly where he wants you. Now, I'm not saying that that's fun for you. I'm not saying that God purposes for you to go through horrible things in that way just, to, just for the sake of shaping you, but I think he does shape you in the midst of it, in the midst of the hard stuff. In the midst of the stuff like me where you'd probably rather take the quickest off-ramp, not get on the plane, it's like, okay, is there anything else that I could do? Like, that might be exactly where he wants you. So God knows what you need. He does. He knew that as a preacher, what I needed was a difficult preaching slot to remember, oh, this isn't dependent on you and it's not about you, it's about me and I'm fueling you, let's go. I'm your dad and I know how to, I know how to take care of my own. And I think the same thing can apply in, in conflict. So let me just ask you a question. Do you believe God can help you in whatever you're facing? Do you believe like the next step he's putting in front of you is the, even though, even if it's uncomfortable, scary, do you believe that it could be the right next step for you in that relationship? I want you to picture for a minute, I know this is hard to do, and maybe you just picture the face of Jesus. If you can picture the face of Jesus looking at you as you think through whatever difficult situations or circumstances you're currently facing, what do you see on his face? What do you see on his face? That'll tell you what you really believe about Jesus and by, by implication about God the Father. If you see anything other than I'm here with you in it and I'm here to help you and I want to get you through this, that's a different God. It's quite simply not the one revealed in this text or in scriptures. He knows how to help. And we're going to see something remarkable with point number three. If you're taking notes... God wants you to ask. Scripture for this is Matthew 7, verses 7 to 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Okay, let's get, let's nerd out on the Greek a little bit. Verse, quote number four. Quote number four. Okay, so verse number eight, this sort of like, sounds like a restatement. Seven and eight sound like they're saying the same thing. This, though, does more than simply restate verse seven with the quote-unquote for, for everyone who asks. It grounds the commands in further promise and extends it to the present. God's response is guaranteed. Jesus switches to the present tense from the futures in verse 7 in the second half of the first two clauses to emphasize the, the divine response in the present situation. Okay? God's faithfulness in responding to prayer is distinctly highlighted. Okay, and then it goes on from there. Everyone are those people who are in his kingdom who are subject to the king. God wants to help you. And so he wants you to ask. There was a Sunday morning or a Saturday night, I forget when it was, where I was getting ready, I was finishing up, uh, I was finishing up a message. And it was about anger. It was about anger. It, it, and it was, it was fascinating because that very day uh, that I was preaching or I was gonna, getting ready to preach on anger, somebody from my past messaged me. And it was somebody 
who I had gone through some of the worst conflict of my life with. I, I remember, I don't even get all the details, but I just felt, uh, I felt blasted by this person. And so what ended up happening that day is he sends me a message affirming his love and affection. So here I am talking about anger, thinking about the ways in which I've experienced anger in my own life, the ways that I've shown anger to others and the way, uh, ways others have shown anger to me that's led to destruction. And here is this guy texting me love and affection. He doesn't live here. He's, he doesn't know anything about what I'm doing. And it just hit me. Oh, this is a little reminder, almost like a, do you ever feel like God winks at you? It was like a, I got you, pal. Things look, and the reason I think that was so meaningful is because that situation, things looked impossible at different points. And it was like, God was like, if, if I have two people who are willing to submit to me, I can do anything. He knows how to help, and he wants you to ask. I remember I was thinking about this, uh, just another story, uh, where I went through some of the most painful conflict that I've ever dealt with uh, in ministry. It took place years ago, uh, different context, but we, my wife Heather and I were, Heather was pregnant with Addie, our second, and she was, we were, we were getting ready to go, come into a season where we were going from like a, from a family of three to a family of four. It, it was a, a difficult, uh, if you know, if you've had kids, you know, like, when you add a kid, life changes completely. And so we were in a spot where we really needed, we needed a bit of a rest. We needed a little bit of a break to be able to focus on uh, the baby that was coming, on our family. And so we spent uh, a season, instead of leading a gospel community, we spent a season in what was called a turbo group. Turbo groups were essentially like an accelerated leadership development group. And I was in the turbo group with Heather, so we handed off the gospel community that I was a part of, which is normal, like, People hand off gospel communities all the time. In our context, in other contexts, what is not necessarily normal is when one of the gospel communities that you hand off nearly splits the church. That is not normal. It's, but that's what ended up happening, nearly. To make a long story short, uh, the, the gospel community ended up becoming almost like a, a place where they just vented about their complaints. And it was centered around kids' ministry, which is funny because I was the kids' ministry director <laughs> at the time, which did wonders for my confidence. Just as a side note, as you might imagine, uh, I was a first-year kids' ministry leader, and that's what it became. And so I don't make a little joke of it, but it, it was serious. It was really serious. And I didn't even know. I found out much later. And so what ended up happening was we had to move towards some sort of resolution, obviously. Uh, so we had to pursue relationship. We had to pr pursue reconciliation because this group had turned in a major way. And it was painful because there were some close friends in that community. And I'll never forget the day when we finally had like a big conversation about everything. I'll never forget it because I was not there. I was at the Home Run Derby, for real, true story. I was at the 2016 Home Run Derby in San Diego and it was so fun. 
It just happened, to, it worked out that way, it wasn't planned. I got to take a path. I just got to pray and let others handle the conversation, which for me is like a dream scenario. Not to say that there isn't something significantly important about being there for that conversation. The dream was, I just wanted to see the Home Run Derby. It was a bucket list. And I had other people who, other elders who were there who did such an amazing job of facilitating like a safe conversation where everybody could say what they needed to say and then we can start taking responsibility for what was our part. And so to finish the story, the, one of the people that was involved in that, again, I had been in the gospel community with them, and another person were both, I don't know how else to describe it, I could just see when I would walk past them. Have you ever been in a situation where you just see like, oh man, this is not okay. And that, that was going on for a little while. So this person, that was the case because of stuff, they weren't happy with stuff with kids ministry. And then the other person was unhappy because I hadn't been able to really help her and her husband in their marriage, which I tried. And I couldn't. I sat with them and stuff and just could not help them. Again, second year pastor, really trying. This isn't, this isn't like a pity thing. It's just like there were limitations as to what I could do and give at that point. Um, but on one day, after a season of just intense conflict, prayer, conversation, both of those women came up to me, one after the other, and repented of bitterness to the point where I was like, is this real? One after another. I've never seen anything like that before. I've never had that happen again. But it was like a little, I got you, pal. Just operate my way, and I got you. I don't think that means that every situation is going to be resolved like that, but I do think it means that he's got me. I do think he knows how to help. And I do think he's serious when he says, ask And the beautiful part was those ladies were disciples. So they went through a season of bitterness, whatever. I'm sure I contributed because I'm human. But there was something deeper going on there that God was working out in them. And there was something deeper he was working out in me, which is you can trust me when things don't look so good. Operate my way. So here's my question. My point is God knows how to help and he invites us to ask What do you need today? Like, what help do you need as a disciple today? There's a bunch of stuff that could apply from this message. If you go back to Mark's message from a couple weeks ago, it could literally be like, oh man, I'm starting to realize that there's a level of pride here, and I have a log in my eye, and you take it out. Or, man, I don't know how to respond to this situation. God, please help me. I want to respond your way. Please help me. What do you need? I just want you to know that you're invited to ask for whatever you need. In today's text, I believe what the Father is saying to the disciples who heard the Sermon on the Mount, and by extension, the disciples now, 2,000 years ago, that heard the Sermon on the Mount preached, you can't love without me. I think that's what the Father is saying to us today. You can't love without me. But with me, you can love your enemies. You guys catch that? You can't love without me, but with me, you can even love your enemies. Why? Who came loving their enemies? 
Let's tee it up. Who came? I don't even need to look at the ball. I just crushed it. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He came loving his enemies. Jesus came on a mercy mission of rescue. And he wants to send you and me mercifully into the relationships that we have. Because sometimes you're going to be stuck and need rescue, and sometimes I'm going to be stuck and need rescue. We're going to need each other. You can't love without me, God says, but with me you can even love your enemies, let alone your brothers and sisters. So I just want to ask you the question, is there a relationship in your life that needs attention? That might be where it's really hard. Where where is your life hard right now? Is there a relationship in your life that needs attention? If God is bringing one up, I just want to encourage you, don't let that pass because you're uncomfortable. He's here, available, present. He makes promises. You know what the cool part about promises is? You can test them. You can test them. If I tell you I throw 90 miles an hour, you can grab a radar gun and see that I throw 57. (laughs) It's not true. But if you follow the way of Jesus, if you focus on operation over outcome, by that I mean if you follow his way, that's not a promise that everything's going to go your way the way that you want it to. But it is a promise that you will, you will fulfill God's purposes for you. You'll become like the sun. And you're going to have moments like the ones I've had where somebody texts you, the most random text seemingly of love and affection when you're, when you're preparing to talk about God that confirms, oh, you were at work this whole time. You were at work in the whole thing. I can trust you. And I get to tell people of your goodness. Like that's, that's what the kind of stuff you can do. So is there a relationship in your life that needs attention? You can ask God, what do I need to do to pursue love? Just ask him. And then you can ask him for that, whatever the answer is. That's what I think this text is telling us today. I'm gonna call the band up. I'm gonna invite you to stand if you're able. And I'm gonna call the prayer team to come on up and be ready to pray for people. Uh, here's the truth. We can't control how people react and respond to us. It's probably good to stop trying. But we can focus on operation over outcome. Knowing that we can honor God when we listen to his son's words and do what he says. Check this out from Matthew 17, verse 5. This is, this is the divine word over Jesus' life. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. Okay, Jesus is with his disciples. The transfiguration is taking place. And this is what happens. A voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And what's the natural response to that? Listen to him. Listen to him. You get to honor the father by listening to his son. Whoever receives the son receives the father who sent him. Whoever doesn't, doesn't. That's the truth. But I think we're not going to be the kind of people who listen to the Son unless we realize the Father is completely trustworthy. The Father has sent His Son on a rescue mission of mercy for you and me. That transforms us 
It's not just, it's not fire insurance. I'm not sure that anybody here necessarily believes that, but just to clarify, believing in Jesus is not fire insurance. It's not a get out of hell card. It, it's so much more than that. Believing in Jesus is the start of new life through his sacrifice and death on your behalf to break the power and penalty of sin over your life because one day the presence of sin will be gone altogether. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. But participation in that, you have to listen to him. I want to close with this. I started talking about Back to the Future. And Marty McFly in this saloon, about ready to get into a duel. And he knows if I go for this, I'm dead. This is gonna kill me. And what you see in that moment is this incredible picture of him like weighing out, what kind of person am I? What is my life gonna be about? And if you guys don't mind throwing up uh, picture number four, this is the picture, again, incredible screenshot from my phone of my iPad. That is Marty McFly's great, great, great grandfather, who's just told him over the course of the last few days about a relative of his at that time that Marty knew nothing about who died because he, get, he would get, his buttons would get pushed and he reacted rashly and he died. It was his great-grandfather's brother. And Marty had this realization of like, oh my gosh, if I continue down this path, I'm going to become like him. And the reason I mention this is because I love this picture. This morning, the father is looking at each of us and saying, what are you going to do? In this conflict, and this brokenness, and this relationship, will you trust me in my words? Because he had told him not to be reactive not to let his pride get the best of him. And I think the Father's saying the same thing to us today. The difference is, the Father comes to make his home with us in the Son. He comes to live inside of you when you believe in your Son, when the Son. And he can empower you and help you to live a totally new life. So Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're a good dad who doesn't tell us things to annoy us, to bother us, to pester us, to badger us. You're not sitting over us, looking down on us. You're looking right at us and saying, ask me. I know how to help. I know this is hard. Ask me and watch what I do. And I pray that this morning that we would ask and seek and knock and see the door opened to us to follow your son in his way. Whatever the outcome is, operate like he did and experience fullness of life now. God, we love you and we thank you. To your name we pray. Amen. Okay, we've got about 20-something minutes. And if anything that I mentioned this morning stood out to you, if you know there's a relationship that needs repair, if you know that, that there's character issues that are coming up that need attention, or you're just hurting and broken because of things going poorly in your life and relationships, can I just invite you there are trusted men and women up here who have the spirit of Jesus who want to pray in line with the will of the Father over your life. 
So come and get prayer. And for everyone else, two responses. Patient, come and get prayer. Priest, offer him praise because he has been merciful. The Old Testament describes God as rich in mercy. So he's not calling us to be something he's not. He's saying, be like me. This is how I've treated you. Treat each other with mercy. And so we might just need to spend some time praising him because he's merciful to us. We don't deserve it. Let's sing.